Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Hello and welcome to Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka. I'm Patrick Boyer. Each month this year, we've examined an indigenous theme or topic. For the final three broadcasts of 2023, I'll answer the question, why does Muskoka, generally known as Ojibwe territory, have a Mohawk community in the center of it? Back on the morning of October 20, 1881, Chief Louis Sahanation and Katrine, his wife, with their children, Rebecca and James, left home after a sleepless night and led 130 other men, women, and children through a gauntlet of chaos toward a waiting steamer. Mohawks lined the route down to the Ottawa River. Some faces were wet with tears. Others gave taunting jeers. This evacuation to Muskoka was further splitting their tattered community. Now, to understand conditions by the 1880s, we really must go further back to contact. Since the 1570s, so three centuries earlier, Mohawks, the easternmost nation of the Iroquois Confederacy south of Lakes Ontario and Erie had been the invincible keepers of the Eastern Doorway, defending their own lands and securing territory of compatriot Iroquois nations to their west, while Senecas guarded the Western Doorway at the far end. Between them, each on their own territory, dwelt other nations of the Iroquois Confederacy, the, Onid, the Onida, Onondaga, Tuscarona, and Cayuga. The Mohawks' domain, occupying the strategic Mohawk Valley in what became New York State, extended from the Hudson River to Lake Champlain and north to the St. Lawrence River. The Confederacy's half-dozen nations united by their common Iroquois language, were the most advanced hunters and farmers of the eastern woodlands peoples. Across the continent, north of Mexico, Iroquois military prowess, statecraft, and political organization were second to none. Before Europeans introduced escalating warfare and fatal diseases, the Mohawk population ranged between seven to 10,000 people, larger than other First Nations, with more and superior warriors. And contact with European arrivals 
introduced strange languages and different religions. At first, Mohawks traded valuable furs for iron tools and woven fabric. Then competition between Europe's rivals greatly increased the furs being exchanged for firearms, beads, and cheap brandy or rum. Alcoholism introduced a perilous weakening. First Nations shifted from honoring the animals they killed for food to slaughtering them only for their fur. After turning the woods into an abattoir, they fought their way into territories of other nations to harvest more pelts. By the mid-1600s, the Iroquois had conquered neighboring First Nations and dominated the immense area bounded by the Kennebec, Ottawa, Illinois, and Tennessee rivers. Then Europeans made military alliances with long-standing rival First Nations. This escalated warfare, thinning indigenous warrior ranks and dividing First Nations more deeply than ever. Europeans colonizing the continent's northeast sought land, furs, military allies, and submissive people they could control. Helping fur traders and land-hungry settlers, missionaries separated Mohawks from their deeply embedded spiritual life, induced them to switch to Christianity, and eroded tribal structures with alien social and cultural practices. As their traditions fragmented with warfare, with warfare the fur trade, Christianity, and disease, the embattled Mohawks shifted along the St. Lawrence River Valley and into lightly populated sections of Quebec. This was ironic because Mohawk animosity toward the French was intense. In 1604, New France's governor, Samuel Champlain, attacked their homeland killing several Mohawk chieftains with musket fire and renaming their largest water body, Lake Champlain, after himself. In 1615, the same year he put Muskoka on a European map for the first time, Champlain again led Frenchmen with firearms alongside his fur trade allies, the Wendat, whom the French called Hurons, against the Mohawks south of Lake Ontario. Intent on vanquishing them once and for all, this provocative mission failed disastrously, with Mohawks understandably aligning ever more closely with the British. And despite that history, French missionaries drew Mohawks from their homeland villages north into Canada for the benefits of Christianity. In 1718, King Louis XV of France granted land west of Montreal near Lake of Two Mountains to Sulpician order priests for a theological seminary. A condition was that the Indians be removed to this new location 
that provision be made for their instruction and care, and that within seven years a fort, a church, and other buildings be erected. The Sulpicians, as that wording made clear, had already been in the business of moving Mohawks around Montreal Island from their first mission in 1676 to a second location in 1696, and now to this new seminary. Known as Oka, or Pickerel, to Algonquins, and Kanasatake, or Sandy Place, to Mohawks, the seminary opening in uh, 1720 consolidated Aboriginal Catholic converts from the wider vicinity in one place. Now, the requirement to build a church aligned with this mandate and establishing a fort implemented France's military view that French-speaking Catholic Mohawk settlements would serve as defensive lines against English attack. By the early 1700s, the two most important such concentrations were Oka Kanasataki to Montreal's northwest and Cognawaga or Kanawaki, again to use its two Algonquian and Iroquois names, on the St. Lawrence's south shore to Montreal's southeast. By the 1800s, most Mohawks were in Canada. Those who had fought for the British to suppress the American colonial rebellion arrived as refuge seekers because George Washington, commander of the Continental Army that overthrew British rule, became president of the United States and placed a bounty on the head of every indigenous warrior who had fought against him. This and other large-scale migrations during the Mohawks' dark and dangerous times could make the relatively small number of people relocating to Muskoka in 1881, fewer than 2% of the remaining Mohawk nation, seem a mere footnote to such history. It was not. The move was consequential for the Sulpician Seminary at Kanasataki, the provincial government in Ontario, and the Department of Indian Affairs in Ottawa all working to assimilate First Nations into settler society. As for the Mohawks, relocating to Muskoka became Exhibit A for just how bad a land deal can be. After a short break, we'll find out why. By Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer, reviewing how Mohawks left Quebec in 1881 to take up new land in Muskoka. The spark igniting this Mohawk migration was a second religious conversion, the first having been to Roman Catholicism. In the 1870s, Chief Louis Sahanation obtained a Methodist Bible and began reading it 
to his people at Kanesataki. As Iroquois, some Mohawks valued an egalitarian society more than the hierarchical and coercive Catholic order by which the Sulpicians now controlled them. Attracted to this more communal form of Christianity, they embraced it. The Catholic black robes had, after all, taught them that changing one's religion was permitted. Early in 1877, the converts built themselves a church. This Methodist structure on Catholic grounds posed a theological and political challenge to Quebec's religious and secular powers. The priests instructed loyal Mohawks who remained Catholic about the perils of Protestantism. Devout men then tore down the provocative Methodist Church. On June 15th, the Catholic Church, the presbytery accommodating priests, and several outbuildings were burned in retaliation. Mohawk families that once divided over whether to become Christian now split between the faith's denominations. By this date, the piety of the seminarians had evaporated. The strict living Sulpicians, now wealthy and influential, coveted the prime Kanesataki lands on which the Mohawks dwelt more than they cared about instructing and caring for them. The Department of Indian Affairs in Ottawa, having delegated the Mohawks' fate to the Sulpicians, let priests have their way, restricting Mohawk freedom, limiting even how much winter firewood could be harvested, and ensuring those exceeding the limit were arrested and jailed. All the while, settlers were farming closer and closer to the seminary, spreading out from Montreal, an opportunity for the Sulpicians a threat to Mohawks watching their space shrinking. Where would their children and their children and theirs live? Duress about land again created visions of black clouds descending over their future. The Sulpicians had a different concern. Methodist clerics, responding to the plight facing Mohawks who had joined them in Christ's work, concluded the priests were breaching obligations running with their 1718 land grant about instructing and caring for the Indians. Now, triggering forfeiture of the seminary land would be hard to achieve, but it was a threat the Sulpicians had to suppress. Their ground war against the Methodists, seen as commonplace denominational rivalry, helped distract from this legal challenge. The situation was delicate because the King's Grant also stipulated that should Indians abandon the scenery, the land would revert to the state. The Sulpicians reasoned that if the Methodist Mohawks left in an agreed manner, the land ownership would issue the land ownership issue would disappear with them. The seminaries saw they could even benefit more if the Protestants took their Catholic confreres with them. Conditions in Quebec had also broadly changed. After 1763, when France ceded Canada to Britain, 
Mohawks became reactivated by the long-standing English-French divide. This contributed to the Sulpician priests negotiating with Indian affairs to buy the Mohawk properties and move their occupants, yet again, to a different spot. Talks about rules for this chess game with humans dragged on inconclusively through the 1870s. Even Methodist churchmen sought this easier solution of relocation. In 1875, a pair of ministers accompanied two Mohawk chiefs to study land near Matawa, up the Ottawa from their existing home, but on Ontario's side of the mighty river, away from the increasingly antagonistic French. However, the Ontario government refused to sell a little heated portent that the province had an attitude about further Mohawk settlement in the province. Meanwhile, back at Kanesataki, violence continued and conditions worsened. In 1877, Indian Affairs consulted Mohawk leaders directly. One, Chief Joseph Onasakanrat expressed his keenness and that of others to relocate to new lands in Ontario. But two years later, with still nothing happening, Chief Sahanation, distraught by his people's unraveling predicament, went up to Ottawa, accompanied by two elders, to get an Ontario reserve themselves. Indian affairs suggested Rama, which was Ojibwe land and made no sense. Another limp idea was land in Ontario's far north, utterly isolated from other Mohawks. A third possibility was territory in unsettled Gibson Township, unpopulated virgin land large enough for the Mohawk community's future generations and reasonably close, as, as Canadian distances go. Chief Saha Nation explained the Gibson move to his council. When they approved, he signed up all those wanting to go. Indian Affairs contacted Ontario's Crown Lands Commission, which proposed land in Perry Sound District instead. A year later, this stalling tactic ended when Ontario reluctantly agreed to sell Gibson Township land to the Government of Canada for Indian Affairs to resettle Mohawks on it. <laughs> the layers of government jurisdictions and various parties ensured this could not be straightforward. In February 1881, Chief Saha Nation and two others toured Gibson Township, the intended destination. Believing all Mohawks, regardless of religious affiliation, would eventually leave Kanesataki, they envisaged 60,000 acres being needed. Indian Affairs applied to Ontario Crown Lands Office for a reduced range of 15,000 to 28,000 acres, to which the province offered 25,582 acres. Now, less than half the land Mohawk leaders estimated they needed. Because the Sulpicians ardently desired the Mohawks gone, they agreed with Indian Affairs to pay 50 cents an acre for the land. Additionally, 
they would compensate all departing families for land and improvements they forfeited. They would pay $30,000 for moving them to Muskoka, plus the cost of building suitable houses for each relocating family. The seminary gave the money to the federal government and Indian Affairs, which in turn paid the reluctant vendor, Ontario, its asking price for acreage the province had itself selected. On June 24, 1881, Ontario's cabinet approved the sale with conditions. October was late in the season for a distant migration, but it took that long to sort things out. After years of false hope and bitter recriminations, the Mohawks were anxious to leave. Tension and anger, tears and heartbreak all punctuated Kenesatake's glorious fall atmosphere that chaotic morning of October 20, 1881. People who wanted to go no longer did. People who vowed never to leave were now desperate to depart. They were the same people. Names on the list of those going had changed like the weather. In summer 1880, 60 people would leave. By February 1881, that had risen to 33 families, averaging about four members each, or 130 people. In March, the self-selecting refugee families numbered 39. By April, 44. This morning, who knew exactly? In the excited confusion, a boy not anybody on anybody's list boarded the Dagmar and was still parting company with his friends when the steamer left the wharf. As for their compensation, in February 1881, Indian agent John McGeer appraised buildings and lands of the 23 families then intending to leave and placed their value at $24,240. The Sulpicians, who would pay, complained to his employer, Indian Affairs. In March, with 39 families now willing to go, the department's agent revalued the assets much lower, at $9,265. When Magir paid departing Mohawks their money, promised as inducement to leave, it was only $3,005, not even one-third of his much-reduced evaluation. Desperate to get their new land before winter, they accepted the pittance. As expected, the timing of the trick worked. Migrating at intervals had long been customary. A new site offered more game, fresh forests, richer soil and firewood aplenty. But after the French, British, and Dutch arrived, Mohawk relocations had little to do with sustainable living off the land. The trade steamer Dagmar covered the two downstream miles of Ottawa River to St. Anne, where the emigres transferred to a CNR train. Agent John McGeer accompanied them, tallying 70 adults 33 youngsters not yet five years old, and 30 children between ages 5 to 15, among them a boy who decided to continue with his friends on the adventure into Ontario. Aboard the train to Gravenhurst, Antoine de Wash's wife delivered a baby girl. They named her 
Wahatanei, meaning journeying. At the Muskoka village, after arriving October 22nd, one child died of sickness. Some families decided to overwinter in Gravenhurst. The migration now beginning to fray around the edges would continue to change dramatically with the Mohawks' circumstances in Muskoka. We'll pick up that saga with installment two in November. Thank you for listening. Our producer here at Hunters Bay Radio is Matt Fisher. I'm Patrick Boyer. Thank you.